common today to hear these words. I am a man trapped in a woman's body. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. 25 years ago, such a statement was strange and easily dismissed, except in the rarefied air of select educational institutions. However, today, such a statement reflects the prevailing social orthodoxy. It's not just the academic, the politician, or the Supreme Court justice who accepts it. It's a common currency that few people will challenge. And all of this leads to a series of questions that are important for us to ask and to answer, which will direct our time together this morning. First, how did this transformation of social values take place? And second, what does God say about the situation? And finally, how are we as Christians today in the church to navigate this cultural moment? Let me also begin by issuing a qualification that these are not areas of expertise for me. Cultural analysis is not what I studied in and what I'm prepared to do, but using other scholars and helpful writings that they have produced will find our way through this. I'm particularly indebted to Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. You may want to look into reading that book, and I particularly encourage you to wait for the second version that will be slightly abridged that will be coming out soon. I believe you'll find that helpful on the cultural analysis side. But let's begin with our first question. How did this transformation of social values take place? Please note that what I'm doing is describing. I'm providing you with a description of modern culture, not a defense of it. I'm trying to explain what you see going on around you, and we'll give you some his history, a taxonomy of how that has come together. Many of the changes that we are talking about, we feel that they've happened suddenly and that they're fairly violent cultural shifts. But it's important for us to recognize that these cultural forces have been at play and have been unfolding for a long time. We are reaching the culmination. There's a snowball effect that is taking place where several lines of thought, academics and philosophers, and with, uh, with politicians as well, uh, that these lines of thought have converged and they are informing Western society today. And so we're going to look at this in four steps to help you understand how this specifically took shape. Step number one is what we will call the psychologization of the self. Now, traditionally, the world was assumed to have a certain order and a certain meaning that we are to discover and conform ourselves to. It was assumed that there was a, stru a structure defined from the outside that informed how we define who we are and what constitutes a good life. Christianity constructed this traditional view of reality in the United States, teaching that God created human beings with a certain design and for a certain purpose, that we are accountable to him, that our flourishing as people is defined by aligning ourselves with the purpose for which God created us. This traditional approach to understanding human beings has collapsed broadly in our culture today. It is assumed that the world does not have a given order or a meaning defined by God. Rather, the world is like raw material out of which we as individuals are to create our own purpose and our own meaning. 
It is a world in which nothing is necessary and everything is possible. Meaning is defined by the individual. Meaning and truth are nothing more than personal taste and preferences. There is no external definition. Therefore, you are the captain. You get to define your reality. You get to choose your own adventure. This is what it means to be authentic, to be real, to be free. That there is no authority beyond your personal psychological conviction and that to be a true person means that you have the right to determine all of these things. This is expressed in popular culture in many different ways, but some phrases that you might have heard is, well, you have to live your truth, and you have to be you. And it's important to recognize that on the popular level, this is not so much a conscious philosophy as it is a set of intuitions and practices, that there is this inward quest for psychological happiness and that people are fulfilled as they live into their own truth that they have defined for themselves. Now, the implications of the psychologization of the self are fairly obvious. When we live in a world without any givens, that is, without any structure coming in from the outside, then we are free to define everything in the world in which we live by what we want it to be. And so male or female body parts are negotiable. Gender is something that can be constructed. Marriage can be uh, defined in the ways that we find convenient. And so marriage and gender are simply what we want them to be. Now, this major feature of the psychologization of the self, this has collided with three other social and political factors to create a potent force that we are currently experiencing. And so we need to look at step number two, which is what we will call the sexualization of psychology. Now, human history, let's be clear, is replete with the history of sexual debauchery. Sex is clearly a powerful and sometimes irrational force at work within us. However, in the thought of Sigmund Freud in the early 20th century, psychological happiness is assumed to be fulfilled by sexual expression. And even though his research and methods have been debunked broadly, Freud's thought has been enshrined in modern thought. Sexuality has moved into the core of human identity after the work of Freud. And this hits the mainstream in the 1960s and has been evolving and gaining steam ever since. And so what it means to be a fulfilled and a true human being is one who is free to express themselves sexually as they desire without any repression or restraint. This is the second step, the sexualization of psychology. Now, the third step is a strange one. and It's what we will call the politicization of sex. In a strange series of events, several scholars wed Freud's lines of thinking about human beings and the freedom to express themselves sexually with their own Marxist convictions. 
it's important to grasp this part of the story, even though one of the more difficult ones, because Marxist ideology is built on the notion of conflict between two parties, the oppressed and the oppressor. This was once defined as the conflict between the working class, the proletariat, and the upper class, the bourgeoisie. However, after the failures of Soviet communism, Marxist theorists began tweaking their theories to fix exactly what had gone wrong. And so armed with Freud's notion that human beings are most satisfied when sexually fulfilled, theorists like Reich and Marcuse began to argue that revolution was necessary. But the oppressor this time was traditional society, which upheld traditional sexual values. Therefore, to liberate human beings, the primary task of revolutionary politics is to demolish repressive sexual codes. The traditional family structure is seen as an oppressor in this system, in that this institution upholds the repressive system of sexual values. Along with this, Gramsci, an Italian Marxist, proposed that the modern approach to political revolution was to transform cultural institutions, such as schools and media platforms, through a vanguard of intellectuals and elites. And so sex, which used to be an intimate and private encounter, became a subject of political concern. The reason for some of the aggression in the new left is that dissent must be squashed in order for political liberation to take place. That if there is repression, it must be removed if human beings are truly to experience fulfillment and being free to express themselves sexually as they desire. And so this is the third step in the system, the politicization of sex. Now, the final step that we'll discuss is what we will call the democratization of happiness. In American culture, with the recession of traditional Christian morality, equality or tolerance has become the chief and really only moral virtue. Equality is defined not simply as the freedom to, to be and to do, but more so as the right to be recognized Therefore, to not affirm someone's psychological sense of well-being, which is defined sexually, is to be a bigoted, narrow-minded hater. And so this is how we've arrived now at the current moment in which the psychologized self meets up with these other three important steps. And when this is all mashed together and multiplied by one another, we have statements being made like, I am a man trapped in a woman's body because this is how I defined myself and I also have a political right to be recognized. And so it's important for us to appreciate and understand all of that history and how these things have come to be because we live in this present moment and we have to understand what God says about that moment and then what God wants us to do. And so question number two, what does God say about the situation? There's two answers that we will explore here. Answer number one, we are more than the sum of our sexual desires. 
As Christians, we believe that God created everything, including human beings, and he defines our purpose and he defines our identity. This is not up for grabs or negotiation. We are created in his image, made to commune with him, designed for male-female relationship, and commissioned to work, exercising dominion inside of the creation for God's glory. Given this, our ultimate good and happiness is found in communion with God and when we are aligned with his creational purposes. Within that whole system, sex is a good gift in God's world. But it also is a gift that's never intended to constitute our identity. Because whenever we take a good gift of God's and we make it something ultimate, it will always fail us. This was Augustine's discovery in his own quest. And why is that? It's because that good gift cannot carry the weight that we are putting upon it. It cannot sustain that much pressure. And so sex and your sexuality, when those are made to be ultimate things, constitutive factors of your identity, it will will fail you. And so what Sigmund Freud ultimately delivers to us is an impoverished and unsustainable definition of what it means to be a self. It is weak and it cannot deliver the goods And what Christianity provides is a robust affirmation of what it means to be a human being and what it means to have dignity and what it means to be created in the image of God. And so know that we must affirm inside of all of the chaos that we are more than the sum of our sexual desires. Now answer number two is that we are witnessing humanity's primal rebellion against God. It's important because several months ago, we worked through Romans chapter 1, and when we arrived at verses 24 and 30 through 32, we see that the Apostle Paul three times uses a particular phrase that God gave them up or God delivered them over. It's the same word that will be used of Jesus later on in chapter 8, but it is human beings that are being given up and handed over or delivered over. In verse 24, we see that they were given up to the lust of their own hearts. In verse 26, we see that they were given up to their dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, they were given up to a debased mind. Now, this handing over is a judgment by God in which humans are left to their own devices and desires. And the reason for this judgment is given to us in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And Paul repeats this in verse 28. To properly read this passage, especially to understand what Scripture says about the disordered human sexuality, it's critical to interpret this clearly. Here, human moral depravity, in all of its shades and all of its shadows, is not the reason for the wrath of God. Paul refuses to provide a catalog of sins as the cause of our alienation from God. Rather, God's judgment on humans, in which they were handed over to their own devices and desires, and unnatural sexual acts emerged, that all of this is the result of the exchange that has taken place, in which we snubbed God and traded him out for things within the creation. This is the problem. 
And so when our first parents took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this was not an act of physical gluttony, a mere lack of self-control. No, what was happening is that Adam and Eve wanted to be the judge of good and evil. They wanted to be the arbiters of right and wrong. They wanted to shake off the yoke of being subjected to God, and they wanted to be the ones who determined by their own taste and preferences what reality was really like. They wanted to be the ones who determined that. And so what we find in our own cultural moment is not something new, but it is this primal rebellion of human beings in which we shake off the yoke of God in any external definitions, and that we declare that we ourselves are the captains, that we are the judges of right and wrong. We are the judges of reality and design. And so one of the most important questions for us, especially when we experience frustration with our own cultural moment, is to ask the question, what exactly were we expecting? Because we see here from Romans 1, exactly what to expect that fallen human beings who have exchanged the truth about God for the lie, who have attempted to be God, and who are lost in their own sinful moment, that they become lost in their sexual expression, and it becomes all confused and disordered because they have turned against God. And what we see is that for the Christian church is that we're not somehow smarter or better than these other people, but we too participated in all of that debauchery because we too turned from the truth to the lie. But what has happened for us is that the grace of God has intersected our lives. God has intervened and now he has renewed the mind and by grace he has forgiven us and he's leading us now out of Egypt into a new way. And so we've been rescued from the smoking wreck of Adam's shame and Adam's rebellion. But what we see all around us is exactly what the Bible tells us to expect. We see that smoking wreckage of all of Adam's rebellion. Now the final question for us to address this morning is how exactly do we navigate this cultural moment there's a tremendous amount that could be said, and we have limited time, so know that this is only the beginning of an answer. But what we can focus on are two commitments. And commitment number one is this, to dig deep in your Christian faith and recognize that shallow versions of consumerist Christianity will not withstand this cultural tide. It's important to recognize the force of this cultural tide, that it's strong, and it has incredible ability to co-opt us and to overwhelm us. And so for Christians to stand in the midst of this, where we have different convictions about what it means to be a human being and what it means to flourish as a human being, and we have a different ordering of where sex belongs in a human's sense of themselves in order to stand against all of that, that it will require each of us to dig deep, to understand who God has made us to be, to understand who we are, to understand how it is that we've come into relationship with God, how it is that we sustain that in the midst of pressure and struggle and difficulty and strife. And friends, the consumerist Christianity that we find 
broadly available to us in our culture will not deliver on that. It will not provide what we need in order to withstand that cultural tide. And so we will have to dig deep in order to find the integrity to hold this back. And so we have to work hard with children and formation and thinking about what it means to instill in them the cultural values of Scripture and of God's truth. And we have to work hard at it ourselves. And so this has to be our first commitment. And the second commitment is simply this, to build Christian communities around the joyful and liberating hope of the gospel that are characterized by two things, by conviction and by compassion. Because here's the thing that is certain. At the end of the day, we know that this expressive, free, sexually liberated vision of human beings will fail. That is the conviction that we hold fast to. That sex cannot sustain what we are placing on it. That this will crumble. And what we will find is that human beings will be left in that wreckage, lost in their own devices and desires, but yet more empty and more forlorn, more distraught than when they set out. And so the question is, who will be there to pick up the pieces? And in order to pick up those pieces, the Christian church will need two things. They will need conviction, directing the world to God, and directing the world to God's truth. And they will also need compassion, showing forth the compassion of the gospel. We find a beautiful picture of this in Scripture itself, in Acts chapter 8, and verses 26 through 40. At the very beginnings of the church, we have Philip encountering an Ethiopian eunuch. It's important to understand the place of a eunuch in ancient society. He was from the court of the queen. And he comes to Jerusalem, and he comes and encounters the scriptures. But he was a eunuch by his own choice. Eunuchs were men who were sexually disfigured in order to get ahead in society. They could be trusted if it could be thought that they wouldn't have sex with anyone inside the court. And so they would castrate themselves, remove any hope of family in order to advance themselves in society and become these preeminent figures. And so here's this sexually disfigured man, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he arrives at Isaiah chapter 58, and Philip appears beside him, and he asks him to help him understand what he's reading. But what's so important to recognize is that as he read Isaiah 58, it's pretty unlikely that he would not have encountered what was written in Isaiah 54. Words that would have cut him just straight to the heart. Because there in the law of God, the eunuch is reminded that he will no longer say that he is a dry tree, but he will be given a name and hope. Eunuchs were forbidden to participate in the temple's worship, and so this man would have been turned away. But yet, here he reads of the days of the coming Messiah, when no longer will he be turned away, but he will be embraced, and he will be loved. And so then he reads of this Messiah to come in Isaiah 58, and he's asking, who is this one? Help me understand him. And friends, the question for us 
is will we be the ones there with conviction and with compassion for people in all of their disordered loves, in all of their disturbed sexuality, in all the ways that that has gotten messed up? Can we be a community that meets them in compassion? This is God's calling upon us to hold these two things together, conviction and compassion. And so as we look towards next week, know that this will be the beginning place for us for a conversation about Christianity in modern America. Next week, we'll consider the church and how it's been impacted by all of these different forces. And then we'll finally close with a section on politics. But we'll look forward to taking questions and discussing it through the week. And so please join us again. Thank you.